Hello and welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is part two on a series of Reading the Bible. Uh, this one's called Reading the Bible Through the Lens of a Goose in a Concrete Jungle. So recently I was driving and I took the exit ramp and in the grass on the left was a family of geese, a mother and her baby geese, who apparently had a home in the little retention pond at the center of this concrete jungle. The goose and its babies stood near the road of rushing traffic, and I thought, wow, that goose is really out of place standing there. And then it struck me that the goose was not out of place. The goose was the only thing in the right place. What was out of place was the massive highway and the car I was in, since the overpass had only existed for about 20 years. Cars alone have only been around for about a century. The goose was right where it was supposed to be, which was near a body of water with grass around it so that she could find bugs and weeds to feed her babies. Everything but the goose was out of place. And to explain why all of the highways and cars and trucks exist is much harder than explaining the goose. So what has been a fascinating exploration for me is to go back and read the book of Genesis regarding the expansion of technology in the world and from who it comes from in the book of Genesis. And interestingly, as I sit on a, a highway every day, um, I can think about Cain. Cain was the um, one of the sons of Adam and Eve, of course. And all of the technology comes from Cain's line. And Cain's name means possession. So this little story about Cain after the murder of his brother Abel is one of those paragraphs in Genesis that you may feel it's worth skipping because of the whole uh, begat, begat, begat genealogy lines. Uh, but it's so important to slow down or you'll miss the bus into the next dimension of scripture because from Cain's line comes cities and highways and cars and music and polygamy and swords and bullets, pretty much everything. After Cain bashes Abel's head in, uh, he wanders restlessly in a land called Nod, and he starts his own family. And on the face of it, Cain's descendants have incredible accomplishments. Incredible. So listen to this. This is from Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 22. Cain knew his wife, which means he had sex with her. And she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and named it Enoch after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mehujael, and Mehujael the father of Methushael, and Methushael the father of Lamech. This is where it gets interesting. Lamech. Lamech took two wives, and the name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zila. Ada bore Jabal, and this here, listen again. He was the ancestor of those who live in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the ancestor of all those who play the lyre and pipe. And Zila bore Tubalcain. Tubalcain, hold on, folks. Tubalcain, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. Okay, so from Cain's line, he has cities from Lamech. He gets two wives. Lamech takes two wives. There's polygamy. Then you have um, ancestors who live in tents and have livestock, domestication of animals. 
more city type of dwelling. Then you have music, the lyre and pipe, and presumably parties. Let's be serious. Let's be honest. You don't get lyre and pipe without parties. And then Tubalcane, the most interesting of all, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. So this little section of Genesis 4 is anything but a yawner because much else comes down from Cain's line down the road. So these boring genealogies that we skip have treasures in them if you follow who begat who in the Bible. Furthermore, the names themselves have great meaning as they are more than just some username chosen at random. Um, I will consciously avoid diving into Genesis 6 here where the giant clans or the Nephilim come from uh, because that will lead me astray. But let's just explore Cain's family line a bit and the technology and knowledge that comes from it. So in terms of what we value today, Cain's family accomplishments fit exactly what modern parents brag about to one another. The only thing they didn't have in there was youth sports success. Um, I wish they'd have thrown that in there. Like um, Cain's great, great, great grandson was a world-class sprinter or something. But from Cain's line, we get the first city, permanent housing, these single family tent homes, and we get domesticated animals. And that alone is amazing. That really is. But then we get music too, like the arts come from Cain's line. And lastly, perhaps most importantly from Tubal Cain, we get bronze and iron, which means blacksmithing for building tools and what else? More ominously, weapons. In other words, Cain's line is where technology really comes from, which most of us worship today. Let's be honest, I'm doing this on a laptop from Cain's line. Cain invented laptops. Oh. Oh, and we get the first instance of a bad marriage with Lamech, who has two wives. So polygamy enters the Bible initially here without much fanfare. We just kind of just kind of dropped in there like, oh, yeah, Lamech had two wives. It's not saying you should have two wives. It's saying Lamech started this thing from Cain's line. So people often make the mistake in the Old Testament of seeing polygamy and thinking it's some kind of free pass that it's, yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah, it's acceptable. Um, Abraham had two wives. Yeah, and how'd that work out for him? Not good. And of course, it never says you should do it either. It's always a disaster. So whoever has more than one wife in the Bible suffers disorder in their house from Abraham to Jacob to David to Solomon every single time you see it. Never anywhere does it suggest that multiple wives leads to anything good. In fact, Isaac has the one model marriage of the patriarchs, and his story is quite happy, him and Rebecca. But the first polygamist, Lamech? Uh, Lamech is a straight-up sociopath. So we're going to get to more on Lamech in a bit. So now, you can pass by this by in Genesis 4 and say, how ridiculous that one family line could create all of these things. And in saying that, you will miss the whole point because you're reading it like a science book instead of a soul book. And this is what happens when you don't stop and think, what is this book trying to say here? That's when you should go get your pipe, sit by the fire and think, what is this book trying to say here? Because everything in chapter four of Genesis has many layers of meaning. In fact, every chapter of Genesis does. I would say every chapter of the whole Bible, but okay, let's resume. After Cain and Abel, Adam has another son named Seth who we all don't really think about much because he's pretty tame. And this is the line that leads to Abraham and eventually to Mary and, of course, to Jesus. So after Seth is born, religion becomes a thing. 
You'll notice that religion did not come from the line of Cain, and this is important. All we learn about Seth is that after his birth, people began to invoke the name of the Lord. That's the verse about Seth. After Seth was born, quote, people began to invoke the name of the Lord. Hmm, how interesting. Like so many things in Genesis, a single phrase is freighted with meaning, like an 18-wheeler going down the highway right next to the goose. Uh, recall that all of these stories had to come down from oral tradition, so they couldn't be as verbose as I am in posts like this that are way too long and wordy. So from one branch, from Adam, we have technology, art, cities, polygamy, murder, and from the other, we get faith, <laughs> invoking the name of the Lord. Basically, we get humility before God in the line of Seth. That's really his only, quote, accomplishment, if we want to call it that. It's like humility. It's kind of also like the last will be first and the first will be last because Cain is clearly first in this world. Now, worth noting um, is that farming seems to be assigned to Adam as he had to get his bread from the sweat of his brow. Um, but then in the story of Cain and Abel, we hear about farming of both animals and plants because the thing that made Cain go off the handle and kill his brother was Abel's offering of an animal from his flock, which was chosen over Cain's fruit from the ground, meaning some kind of grain. So after Eden, we seem to have a like a semi-idyllic period of farming, and then comes the murder of Abel and all hell breaks loose, like literally. And after the murder comes the march of progress and technology. You could say, really, that Cain is a real go-getter from the start, and there doesn't seem to be much happening in his family around invoking the name of the Lord. He and his children are busy. They seem to have a lot of goals, and they hit their goals, too. They're achievers. In so many ways, Cain's family line is a model and ideal of all that modern high achievers seek for their offspring. If you were talking to a modern Cain, you would likely say, Cain, you must be proud of your children and grandchildren. And I suspect he would agree. He would be very proud. And don't we all say that today? I'm proud of you, son. We're always talking about our pride over accomplishments. I'm proud of you for working hard. Hey, congratulations on landing on the moon, Neil. The whole nation is proud of you. Or this one. Or Mr. Oppenheimer, we at the U.S. Army are real proud of all you've done in helping us build the first atomic bomb. And being proud is the problem because pride really, really likes power. And this is one of the words that we mistake as a good thing. One thing that always gave me a weird spidey sense in the Gospels is when God says he is well pleased over his son, Jesus. Even when I was a kid, when, we'd, when I would hear the readings of Jesus' baptism and the transfiguration, in both cases, God says, well, pleased. He does not say proud. Okay, here's, here's the two s sections. So at his baptism in Matthew 3, it says, And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And the voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Well pleased. Well pleased, not proud. He says, well pleased. Then at the transfiguration, this is from Matthew 17. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, this is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
And when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them saying, get up and do not be afraid. So why does God say well-pleased instead of proud? Is this an accident? Is this some kind of translation error? The word proud seems to fit much better than well-pleased. So it's obvious that this wording is specifically avoiding the language we would normally use for a child that we're excited about. There's a very careful wording here to avoid using the word proud. I could always feel in these events that there's something different about being well-pleased versus being proud. And it seems rather obvious once you realize that the root sin of everything is pride. It's far better to be pleased about a person than proud about them. The difference of being pleased about your team winning the Super Bowl instead of being proud is that in the first case, you're content with the beauty of the game and the, and the outcome, perhaps satisfied with seeing a great game that happened to fit your, your taste. In the second case, with pride, you feel superior for your team winning, and that is the subtle but enormous word difference in the consequence of why they use it, I believe. Because pride is what Cain is. Um, his name means possession, and there's a lot of pride in everything that Cain does. So, when sin was, quote, crouching at his door, Cain did not master it by humbling himself. He opened the door and let sin in. His hurt pride led him to wrath, and wrath, in turn, puts him into a holy terror, actually. Cain also has a terror in him because after the murder of Abel, he feels cursed by God and expects to be murdered himself. So this is after Cain kills his brother. Let me read this from Genesis 4. So we're jumping back to Genesis now. Here's what Cain says to God after he's killed his brother and he's been found out. He says to God, Today you have driven me away from the soil. And I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. And then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. So Cain's terror is softened by what? By God's mercy. With God's mark on him, Cain is protected, but he's not free of his sin nor does he seem to be changed, actually. He gets, he receives the mercy, but there doesn't seem to be change. Um, there's no reference to repentance of any kind. There, it doesn't say anything about that, so I can't really infer what it might be meaning. But, but we do see that rather than repent and kneel, Cain's descendants seem to show no humility at all for this gift of mercy, this really this grace on the family. So Lamech, the first polygamist, his great-great-great-grandson, takes this exemption as a license to kill. Um, not like James Bond, either. It's just like a straight-up, I want to kill people. Because Lamech brags about killing two men. And without remorse, Lamech says, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, 77-fold. So Lamech is not a fan of the heavy metal band Avenge Sevenfold. He's a fan of his uh, of his great 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 grandfather Cain, who seems to have this immunity. He can do whatever he wants. He's like a diplomat in a foreign country. Um, he just gets he can do whatever he wants. So thus we get the full blown sociopath in Lamech, 
the great great grandson of Cain, who feels he feels there's no need for morality, what whatever. He's got multiple murders, he's got multiple wives. Incidentally, this is what I see as the fundamental problem of the whole once saved, always saved uh, doctrine, if you want to call it that, of some Protestants. Because if you are saved, if you're saved and need no further corrections to your behavior, then you can pretty much be Lamech. He, he may, Lamech may love God, but he has no fear of God. That's the problem. It's the same as James Baker when he was loving God and raising tons of money in the 80s while he was committing adultery and, and embezzling money, he said he lost the fear of God. He loved Jesus, but he lost the fear of God. Okay, that's the problem. And by the way, Lamech is a perfect example of a biblical character showing us exactly how not to act. So if we need to have our villain wear a black cowboy hat, Lamech is one of those characters. In the last episode, I talked about pro wrestling um, or cowboys and black hats and white hats. Lamech is is pretty much one of the villains. There's really no redeeming qualities uh, in him at all. Um, it doesn't say that at the end. Like, and, and then Lamech repented and he fell on his face and worshiped. It doesn't happen. So once you go back and read about the fall in Genesis and you follow through the line of Cain, who first sought power by murder due to his wounded pride, a picture of a world full of pride, sin, sex, and violence begins to take shape. Um, his descendants have an increasing urge to control nature via technology and knowledge. And there's a strong economic drive in the line of Cain to gain wealth and influence. Thus, eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil is passed on to us all through some kind of cosmic inheritance from Adam, and yet anyone can reject evil. We are fallen, yet not ruined. We are damaged, but not beyond hope. Because we see Seth on the other side of Adam's line taking a very different approach to life. He's not hammering the world to his will. He is invoking the name of God. So why does Cain's line feel so compelled to invent, explore, study, seek, as opposed to, say, kneeling to pray? Well, why do cities and highways and guns come from Cain, but not Seth? It's because of pride and the fear that stems from it. There is fear of the Lord, also known as awe and wonder. And then there is fear of losing what we have one, what we think we've won here in this life. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because it will bring you to kneel and pray. Fear of others, fear of losing what you have, is the beginning of a vicious circle, uh, the rat race, and it is the gateway to sin. So Cain has, quote, won a license to sin, and his family uses this badge of honor to reject God altogether. But then his descendants attempt to quote, gain the whole world, which Jesus warns us against, because it's a trap. Whenever you gain, whatever you gain, you can then lose to another. And in the process, you will lose your soul. That's why Jesus really doesn't own much. Um, he's, he's, you know, he's like the lilies of the field, or the foxes have dens and birds have nests. Um, he's, he needs very little. So whoever has much is fearful of losing it, and thus needs more power to push the fear away. Lamech pretty much laughs at God, saying that he will be avenged 77 times by God if anyone tries to hurt him. Lamech's comment is even referred to by Jesus later on in the Gospels because Jesus references the same number of 77, and it's not a coincidence. Because in a way, Lamech is right. He's right. God will forgive him 77 times, and God will forgive us, each of us, that many times. He wants us to come back. 
it's kind of the prodigal son story. Lamech is just a little more wild than the prodigal son. That's ex- what Jesus tells Peter is 77 times that he needs to forgive. Oh, so we'll read that in just a second. The whole point is that it shouldn't take us 77 times to wise up and stop committing the same sins. So imagine how depressing this must have been for Peter to hear. This is from Matthew 18. Then Peter said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. So unlike Lamech, Jesus tells Peter that he must constantly take the lowest seat, the humble place, and forgive. This is difficult to do. Why is that? Because of pride. Because we want to be Lamech or Tony Soprano in our own way. We want to win. And you see this play out in the wider world, far beyond the individual. Fear is why the wealthy nations must keep their foot on the head of weaker nations and peoples. Really, this explains any sin from racism to theft to adultery to sodomy to murder. All sin is a lack of trust in God. All sin is a rejection of God for the pride of the self and fear of not getting what we think we want. But Christ is the king who trusts rather than fears. So for everyone in the last century who wanted to flatten Christianity into just another religion, like, say, Joseph Campbell or James Frazier or the New Atheists or Albert Schweitzer or um, Richard Dawkins or anyone else, they are missing the whole point. And this is why Jesus is different. This is why Christianity is different from every other religion. And this is why God does not act like a professional wrestler or a politician, too. Um, To say all religions are the same is just a replay of the myth of what Joseph Campbell called the hero with a thousand faces. Or to say that ancient agricultural sacrifice was the same thing as Christ on the cross is to miss the whole purpose. They cannot see yet because they haven't asked Christ to rub the healing mud into their eyes so that they see what and who he really is. Christ rules in fear, in love, not in fear. Christ rules in love, not in fear. And if you are being told that you must believe or else you'll go to hell, you are hearing the completely wrong motive to believe. Because fear is not the reason to believe. It's the thing that gets conquered when you come to believe. And this doesn't make sense until you have the experience of blind Bartimaeus, who only knows one thing and one thing only, and that that is that Jesus healed his sight and his soul. And the famous thing blind Bartimaeus says is that, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He sees the world in a different light. All right, we'll continue this series with some other uh, interesting metaphors on how to read the Bible, and I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks.